We will be looking at Revelation chapter 7 today, so I want to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 7. And uh, as you're turning there, last week in chapter 6, um, we saw the first six seals of God's judgment being poured out on the earth. Now that might not have been the sermon you were expecting to hear on Easter Sunday, um, but it turned out to be very fitting because it, 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 because it put its finger on something that we don't usually think about, but that we, we very much need to think about. Um, the seals that we saw in chapter 6 are vivid pictures of God's wrath and judgment against sin. And the chapter ended with people running for their lives and wishing that they would die. They were crying out to the mountains and rocks to fall on them and to cover them in the hopes that they might be hidden from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And then that chapter ends with this haunting question, who can stand? Who? Who can stand? And the answer from this picture is no one. No one can stand. But thankfully, the book doesn't end with chapter 6. And so we come to chapter 7 and we see angels in multitudes. And what are they doing before the same throne and the same lamb? They are standing before the throne. Now how can this be? Because the chapter ends with the question, who can stand? But chapter 7, we'll see people are standing. So let's dig into that and look at that together. And for that reason, because standing is a prominent theme in chapter 7, I want to invite you to stand as we read God's Word. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him night and day in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're reminded that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but this word of our God stands forever. And this is what we want to stand on. We want to be a people who stand upon your word. So right now, corporately, we posture our hearts to say, God, speak to us, show us realities that we have ignored and neglected, encourage our hearts, assure us of the future that you have in store for us, impress us, amaze us with your love and mercy that exists in the midst of judgment upon sin and all that we deserve, God. May we be comforted by these truths that we read this morning. And may the goal of this instruction be love. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I am a home inspector by uh, profession. That's what I do full time. And um, we have a lot of people moving into West Texas from different places. And they're coming from places like Houston and, you know, other parts of of Texas. And one of the questions we get uh, is about termites. Now, Josh Graves is a termite inspector and a great home inspector. I'm not a termite inspector. He is. He could tell you this better. But um, people think, well, we're moving to West Texas. It's real dry. And they say, well, you, you don't really have problems with termites out here, right? Because it's so dry. And they're, because they're coming from like Houston. And uh, we have to explain to them, no, actually, because it's so dry, that's why we have a huge problem with termites, because all they have to eat on is the wet wood under your house. They just don't have a whole lot to choose from. So actually, it's a huge problem in our area. But people moving here think that it's, it's not really that big of a problem, and we have to help them understand. Well, it's easy to think, um, we, we can think, you know, I'm good in, in a certain situation, but our confidence might be based on false assumptions, right? We can look at something like God's wrath, which we learned about last week, and think less of it than it really is. Think it's less of a problem than it really is. I know I can do that. I mean, do I really believe that God's wrath will be poured out on my loved ones if they don't turn from their sins and repent and turn to Jesus? Do I really believe that? I don't live like that's a reality. I mean, just applying it personally, do I really believe and understand that because of my sin, God's full wrath is really actually what I deserve? I mean, just like with termites in West Texas, I can take something that's a real problem and not take it seriously, not make much of it, make less of it, minimize its reality. And that's where the book of Revelation is a gift to us because it keeps bringing us back to realities that we need to reckon with, that we need to see. But it's not one-sided, is it? It's not just warnings and threats, praise God. There are other realities at play that are massive and must not be missed. And that's what chapter 7 is all about. As sure as God's judgment is upon sin... We also have this assurance that God secures his people from coming judgment. So that's the main point. That's it in a a nutshell. God secures his people from coming judgment. But I want to ask you, do you really believe that? 
do you, do you need that truth in your life? Do you think that you'll be fine on your own? Do you hope that people might be impressed by how put together you are, that you're pretty good, that you're, you know, or, or do you see yourself as vulnerable? Because God comes with security and he secures his people because in fact they are loose and vulnerable and unsafe if he doesn't do that. Do we really see ourselves that way? Do we recognize our need for a savior? Do we recognize better what he promises to do? So let's see how that plays out. And one of those things, point one, is that God grants new identity and security to his people. Now, in this opening scene in chapter 7, we have four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back wind, which is an image of coming judgment and destruction. And we know, I mean, just take this week, for example, how powerful wind can be. And we live on the edge of town, and the sand, you just hear it pelting the window when the wind gusts kick up. And it's like, we, we live at the beach without water. I mean, we walk out, and the sand is so thick, there's ripples, like when the wind blows on a sand dune. There's ripples on the sand in our driveway, and our boys step in it, and there's footprints. It's like, it's like we're at the beach without the water. Wind is a powerful thing. In verse 2, we have another set of four angels who are bringing about that judgment that's represented by the wind, and they're bringing about that destruction. And actually, those four angels map on to the description of the four horsemen that we learned about in chapter 6. So you picture the scene. You have these four um, who have the power to bring judgment, and then you have the other four angels who have the power to uh, withhold judgment and hold it back. And then there's this other angel who rises up from the, the rising of the sun. And this angel has the seal of God and he tells them what to do. He tells, he tells them to wait and withhold judgment. Look at verse 3 there. Saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So judgment and wrath are coming but not until something else takes place. Not until the servants of God are sealed on their foreheads. Then John says he hears the number, 144,000. That's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, who are the 144,000? This is a main, even if you know little about Revelation, that's probably in the, if we had family feud, like top three questions that people have about Revelation. Who are the 144,000? That's going to be one of the options, I think. Some of the best scholars out there have answered this question very differently. As one commentator said, if you read five different commentaries on this, you'll have six different answers. <laughs> um, end times, uh, you know, that subject as a whole, we, we are bringing often a certain framework to the book of Revelation. And if we bring our framework, then it's easy to see where the text fits into the framework. So it's good to just stop and ask, well, what, what assumptions, what framework are we bringing to the text? It's unrealistic to say, well, we shouldn't bring any assumptions. Well, no, we do have 65 other books of the Bible that should shape those assumptions. So we want those assumptions to be being shaped by all of Scripture. And if we do that, then the framework that we bring to chapter 7 will help some of these things come into clarity. It's not easy, though. And we may have different views even among us about who these are, and that's okay. I, I want to present what I think makes the most sense and why. 
And, and this would represent where Pastor Billy is as well. Um, so we'll dig into this a little bit. We're told that these are, at least they're the sons of Israel, is the description that we have in verse 4. But the list of names is unusual, and it's not what we might expect. I mean, Judah is first, not Reuben, the natural firstborn. So that kind of tilts the scale that this is, why would Judah be first? Well, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The first half of the list contains the sons born to concubines, not to Leah or Rachel. Then Joseph is listed along with only one of his sons. Usually Joseph is not listed and the half tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh are listed when the tribes are listed throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But here Joseph's there, but only one of his sons is there. Um, the tribes who turn to idolatry later in later years like Ephraim and Dan, they're not included on the list. Levi is included in the list, but not in other Old Testament list because they were the priestly tribe and they were not apportioned land like the rest of them. So it's a familiar list, but it's an unusual list. And so what do we make of that? I think that this section is best understood um, when it's laid alongside the next section in, in verses 9 to 17. So in the first scene, you have this very specific number, 144,000, with a specific identity, sons of Israel. In the second scene, it's a multitude that no one could number. And their identity is that they are made up of people from every tribe, not just the 12 tribes. The people in the first scene are sealed by God. Being sealed on the forehead is an image used in Revelation to denote ownership and uh, belonging, whether to God or later in the book to the beast, who puts his mark on the forehead as well. But it's also... The, the image of sealing is also an image that's used in the New Testament to describe all believers. So, for instance, Ephesians 1.13 says that when we believed on Christ, we were all sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We were given the Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance. We belong to God now. So, I think the best interpretation of the 144,000 is that this is a metaphorical way to portray a, a true Israel, which is the church, rather than the alternate view that this is a reference to a literal Israel. And, in, in a, and a literal Israel and a true Israel is a New Testament category, by the way. Romans 9, uh, 6 talks about, for not all who are descended from Israel, that would be literal, ethnic, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, spiritual Israel. And you see, so Paul makes this distinction. He, he argues for it, in fact, um, in those chapters. It's also in Paul's extended discussion about how natural branches, Israel, are broken off so that wild branches, Gentiles, non-Israelites, are grafted in. So we, we do have this category of, of a Israel and then true Israel. Um, not all Israel is Israel, uh, Romans 9, 6. Galatians 3, 29 as well. If you, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Which is a specific way to say you, you belong to the true Israel if you belong to Christ. Heirs according to promise. Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Those are things that would be said of, of ethnic Israel. But they're being, it's being redefined along spiritual terms because you belong to Christ. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, he tells a group of Gentiles. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. 
a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, you were Gentiles, now you are God's people. So see, the New Testament gives us this category of true Israel. In the New Testament, under this new covenant, it is the church, it's believers in Christ. Now, we're not necessarily saying that the church replaced Israel. That is a a theology that exists out there. We're not saying that, but that the Israel of God is a distinct group of people belonging to God that has been newly constituted along new terms under a new covenant and with new defining marks. Things like circumcision of the heart, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit versus the observation of the Spirit dwelling in a temple in the Holy of Holies. It's a spiritual temple that the community of God's people is now described as. There's a new meal celebrating the ultimate Passover. You see, all of the terms of this new covenant are are defining, redefining, reshaping the terms of the old covenant. And they're being reshaped along what Christ has accomplished for us. So I think this list is meant to introduce a familiar category, sons of Israel. But then to challenge our understanding of who that really is in the new covenant age. To help us see that, oh, this is the body of Christ. They are the new people of God. They are sealed on their foreheads. They're being brought in and protected before final judgment falls. And not one of them will be lost because judgment is held back until they're all brought in, until they're all sealed. This number shows up again in chapter 14. And there, there's actually, in reference to the 144,000, there's actually no reference to Israel. And instead, there's vivid imagery that really reflects a lot of what we see in chapter 7, which only serves for me to confirm that the the 144,000 would be best understood as the new Israel, the true church, the number of elect that God will save. So, I know that was quick, but we're going to, I think it'll make more sense as we go on. So if this group in verses 1 through 8 is actually the church, the true Israel, made up of both Jews and Gentiles, who alike have put their faith and hope in Jesus, then what's with the number? Why would there only be 144,000 of them? Well, 12,000 is a specific number, but it also could be a rounded number. Many numbers in the Bible are uh, numerical lists, often have rounded numbers in the Bible. Jesus fed the 5,000. Doesn't mean there were not 400. 4,999 or 5,001. It's just, there were 5,000, you know. We don't want to impose uh, Western literalism on uh, ancient uh, historical narrative, which is governed by different standards than, um, you know, modern contemporary historical tracking and stuff like that. So, especially when we come to apocalyptic literature, whether that's Daniel or Revelation, um, we want to be careful with over-literalizing things. It's kind of like in college, if you took a poetry class and you're in your poetry class and then from there you go to statistics class, well, you're going to approach those two classes differently, right? You should, um, because in poetry you have symbolism and you have images, you have meaning that's being conveyed through pictures and rhyme and meter. In statistics, there, there's not that. It's calculated. It's numerical. It's a different approach. And um, if you approach your statistics class like you do a poetry class, you probably won't pass. And um, so when we come to this, this is more apocalyptic literature would be more like approaching a poetry class than a statistics class. And I think that's a helpful rubric for interpreting the book of Revelation. 
Here it's not just any round number, this number is significant. It's 12 squared. 12 squared is a picture of perfection. It's 12 squared times 10 cubed, which is a picture of completion. So perfection and completion coming together. This group, whoever they are, are perfect and complete in every way. And they are sealed by the living God. As one theologian puts it, the total may be a symbolic number, but it is still a number If God can count the very hairs of our head, a counting of the heads themselves is unlikely to be beyond him, right? I agree. The Lord knows those who are his, 2 Timothy 2.19. And what John heard was God's declaration of their total given symbolically as 144,000. But what he saw, now he's going to 9 to 17, on the other hand, was that this definite total known to God is from the human point of view a numberless multitude. Similarly, from God's standpoint, they're all Israel, his people. But from our standpoint, they come from every nation under heaven. I I thought that's a, a helpful way to explain what's going on here. So in one sense, both the group in verse 1 through 8 and the group in 9 through 17 are the same. They're all true believers. They're being described from two different perspectives. From the perspective of heaven, the number is specific. And they have this new identity as the Israel of God. And from John's perspective, it's a multitude none can number, streaming in from every nation. But both are true. God has determined whom he will save, and there will be one new people. And those people, which remember is a number known only to God, will be made up of both Jews and Gentiles from every tribe and nation. Okay, so what we're doing right now, just just to pause, because I know this this probably feels dense to you. I'm laying important foundations. We're going to get to application in a minute. But for, for, for you to see where this applies to our lives now, it's important that the application is standing on firm foundations. So we want to understand this. However true my application might be and accurate to what else the Bible teaches, if we're not seeing how it emerges from what God has given us here, then it doesn't have much to stand on. So that I'm trying to lay those foundations for you, and I hope that's helpful. Um, another distinction we see just has to do with timing. The 144 seem like they're still on the earth because judgment's being held back in some sense. Remember, even in chapter 6, um, there, we only get six of the seven seals. Chapter 8, where we're going next, opens with the seventh and final seal until all the servants of God have been sealed. That is, until all those God has chosen to save will be brought in. Um, verses 9 to 17, the scene is heaven though. And this multitude is already worshiping God there. They've, they've been brought out of the great tribulation, which we'll get into in a minute. So the 144,000 is an image used to describe what theologians have called the church militant, which is the church on earth waging war against the enemy, and the church triumphant, which is the glorious bride in heaven united with the groom. Uh, Michael Wilcock, again, states it well. He says, uh, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when we first put our faith in Christ. From that moment forward, our ultimate safety was guaranteed. So when the searing winds begin to blow, the servant of God is found to have been sealed already against their power. The horsemen ride out on their career of destruction, but the church has been made indestructible. I love that. So good. So the main point of verses 1 to 7 is this, just that in these last days... Well, havoc is being wreaked upon the earth and there is great tribulation. God is still sovereign. 
You see this in the beginning. He determines when and where and how far the enemy can go. He controls the timing of these events in order to seal and save and secure every last one of his servants, the elect, before the end comes. So how does that speak to the the evil, the wrongs that you see in the world? Here in this picture of the last days, there's judgment that's coming, but God is sovereignly controlling how and when it comes about for the purpose of securing the salvation of his people. So here's what this means for us. If you're alive today and you are a Christian, you are included in the metaphorical 144,000. You've been sealed by Christ with the promised Holy Spirit, haven't you? We see that from Ephesians again. God, and that means that God is working all of history and world events towards your preservation. That's amazing. This is astounding to think about. It was Henry Martin that said, I am immortal until God's work for me to do is done. Isn't that great? That's why the doctrines of election and eternal security should make us get to work. They shouldn't make us lazy. If you've trusted in Jesus, he's redefined you. He's secured you for all eternity. He's commissioned you with a task because he has people that he intends to bring in before the end comes. So that compels us into mission. That compels us into evangelism. Our pastor from Asia who was with us last week, uh, you heard his heart for the loss. You heard his heart for missions and evangelism. If we had time, you could sit with him and you would hear him through tears wonder at the wonderful mystery of God's divine election. He loves God's election because he recognizes that he received mercy when he didn't deserve it and that could not possibly have come from him. And for him, that compels him to be evangelistic. It doesn't make him say, well, if God's determined who's going to be saved, why do we need to tell him? He says, if God's determined who's going to be saved, what are we doing? Let's tell him. Let's watch him get saved. God's going to do it. The confidence is in God's choosing to save people that compels him to be evangelistic. And that's such a beautiful thing. And that's exactly like what we see here. It's not just that. He's... he's, redefined us. He secured us. He grants significance in our otherwise meaningless life. He grants direction and purpose. He makes your parenting effort, your witnessing efforts more than they could ever be on their own. And he will make sure that your faith doesn't fail. He will hold you fast as we sing. No matter how bad things get, what we see from these first few verses and the four winds and the angels and the angel rising of the sun and holding back judgment until God saves all the people he means to save, what we see in all of that is that no matter how bad things can get, his hand is on the throttle of your trials and the judgment that is coming upon the earth. He, again, that song, he will not let your soul be lost. Because you are sealed on your forehead. You belong to him. See that it's identity and security that God grants to his people. And it's how he secures them from the coming judgment. Point two, moving to verse nine. All nations we see will worship God. We see this in verses nine through 12. Where chapter six presents God's judgment against sin. And it ends with that question, who can stand? Chapter seven comes along and answers that. In verse 1, the angels of God are standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back judgment against God's elect until every last one of them is saved and sealed. But who else can stand? 
We know it's for the 144,000 as it's portrayed in verses 1 through 8. But who else can stand? We'll look at verse 9. After, the, the, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This multitude, you see, is standing. That's an answer to the question, who can stand? This multitude is standing. In, in chapter 6, verse 16, sinners are fleeing and trying to hide. Look at verse 16 with me, if you would. They're, they're calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. But here, this group is doing the opposite. They're standing before this very throne and this very lamb. They're clothed in white robes. They have palm branches in their hands. What does that remind you of? Remember Palm Sunday and the image of Jesus riding on the donkey and people celebrating the victory of a king by laying their palm branches before him and saying, blessed is he who comes. Here, it's actually happening. Then it was short-lived. A few days later, they're crucifying him. Here, no, this is the picture in heaven. Celebrating the victory of this king. Waving palm branches, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. What is this salvation from? Salvation from what? It's salvation from God's wrath towards our sin. The same wrath we see being poured out in chapter 6. That's what we're being saved from. This group is standing there saying, we have been saved from that. And that's not been our doing. That's been something that belongs to God, affirming, again, the doctrine of election that we, is hinted at in verses 1 through 8, that if anybody is saved, if anybody is made to stand in the final day, it's not on the basis of what they've done or how good they've been or how righteous they've been, how much they went to church, how many times they served in kids' ministry. No, our standing in the final day is on the basis of what Jesus has done because salvation belongs to our God. And we stand back and we wonder at it, we marvel at it, and we worship because of it. That's the picture. The one who sits on the throne pours out wrath against sin and pours out mercy towards sinners. How can this be? As R.C. Sproul has said many times, we need to be saved from God. Because when our sin bumps into God's holiness, annihilation should be the result immediately. God is perfect and holy and pure and will not allow sin to stand. And yet sinners are standing before him. How can this be? How is this possible? We need to be saved from God. And the way that we're saved from God is by God himself. God is the only one who saves us from his own wrath. And so as Sproul says, we are saved from God by God. Yes, we are. There is no other hope. There is no other savior. And who does he do this for? Well, John sees it as a multitude that no one can number. Just as the angels are standing at the four corners of the earth, picturing comprehensiveness, of the earth, the multitude is described with four terms, nations, peoples, tribes, languages. Now we, we might, I would say, wrongly think that the sealing of the verses one through eight only applies to one group like ethnic Israel, but we see here actually that there is rich diversity in who makes up the people of God, who makes up the new Israel. It's a multitude that no one can number. Even that phrase harkens back to God's original promise to Abraham. Do you remember that? I mean, Abraham, going way back, Genesis 12. God's promise to Abraham, the OG Israelite. Where God promises him that his descendants will be innumerable. And God will make him a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. 
That promise, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, reiterated, come full circle in this final scene of heaven, brought to pass by the triumph of the one who is seated on the throne and the Lamb. That's who's being worshipped. It's that God who we worship as well. And in verse 10, this multitude is just crying out in worship. In verse 11, the heavenly host are joining in. They're falling on their faces. They're agreeing with the saints who are singing, salvation belongs to our God. They're saying, amen, it does. It does belong to our God. Amen. They're agreeing and confirming what the redeemed saints are saying. That salvation truly belongs to God and to the Lamb. He saves and seals from the coming judgment and wrath. And they proclaim these words. Look at verse 12. Saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Seven words. Completion, perfection. All these images and symbols bound up in this picture drive home the point of What's happening that God secures his people from coming judgment and in so doing draws out their worship and affection for him. If you're a Christian, this is where it's headed. If we're bored with the worship of God now, if we're not deeply affected by the mercy we've received now, know this, you will be when you stand before the throne. Make no mistake, you will be when you stand before the throne. I I grew up, would hear preachers say, if you're bored with worship now, you're going to be bored with worship then. I don't think that's right. If you're bored with worship now, you're not going to be bored then. God will open your eyes to see his grace and mercy in new lights, in ways that you will perhaps only regret that we didn't taste and see it more in this lifetime. So, No one will be bored in that day. Here's the reality. The reality of mercy. Then, in the future day, we will more fully see, yes. But the reality of that mercy then will be no truer than it is right now. Are are we going to get more mercy then than we receive now? Has God's forgiveness and grace not already been lavished on us? What changes then is we just see it better. But the reality, the ontological reality that it's there, that it exists, is no truer then than it is right now. Which means we can get in on this. I I love the uh, original lyrics to the, the hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone. It's in your notes. It says, yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure. It's a great line, the glorified spirits in heaven. What, he, what Top Lady is saying is the glorified spirits in heaven, which is the multitude we're looking at here, those people, oh, they're more happy because they're seeing it more clearly, but they're not more secure than you and I are right now in this broken, messed up, fallen world. We have the same security now that we will see and celebrate more fully then. So those who are in heaven worshiping the Savior for all eternity, they may be happier than we are in this broken world, but they are no more secure than we are right now. And some of us need this assurance right now. It's just as true now as it will be then. So why wait? Get you some of this assurance now. I I think that's the point of this passage, that God has secured his people from coming judgment, and their response is deep worship and gratitude. Do you think maybe God would want to open your eyes to behold more of that grace now? More of his beauty now? More of his power now? 
If this is our ultimate destination, can we experience some of this now? Yes. Oh, we'll experience it fully then, no doubt. I think God would want more of that reality to break into our present reality more than it currently does. And he's using our study in Revelation to do that, isn't he? Isn't it kind of God to take us through this to help us see these images and pictures? Now, how does that happen? How can we let these realities break into our current life? Well, a few simple things. Cling to God's word. This is a theme we see throughout Revelation, especially in the first seven, uh, the, the letters to the seven churches, not just cling to his word, but devote yourself to his church. Give yourself for the sake of the nations and all who are yet to believe in him and to be sealed because one day all nations will worship the one seated on the throne and the lamb who was sacrificed for their sins. And that should just lay us low in gratitude and humility and wonder. Point number three, God will be glorified through justice and mercy. So the scene shifts a little bit, verse 9 through 12. We, we hear what they're saying and what they're worshiping. Verse 13 to 17, there's, it further unpacks who they are and, and kind of what's going on here. One of the elders asked John, and John is wise, is wise enough to admit that he doesn't have all the answers. Who are these people? <laughs> you know. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm not even, even going to try to answer this. That was probably smart. Um, and so the elder answers it that these have come out of the great tribulation. So the 144,000 are pictured as those who have been sealed and will be sealed before the final judgment. The great multitude here, though, is pictured as those who have already come out of the great tribulation, come out of the great judgment. And they're said to have come out of, there's the phrase there, the great tribulation. So what is that? Well, one view of the great tribulation is that this is a period of time that occurs in the last seven years of history following a rapture of the church, which um, I think those are two assumptions I think are difficult to defend, to defend biblically. But under this assumption, uh, the, the 144,000 uh, under this view would be the Jews that are saved during that seven-year period, which is a view that I would have grown up having. But we would see the great tribulation actually referred to in these verses as a description of the last days in general. A time that began with the ascension of Christ and will conclude with the second coming of Christ. Sort of the, the milieu, the context of all of the New Testament instruction to the church is that you're in the last days. You're not waiting for it to come. It's not some future distant event. It's this church age, the period following the ascension of Christ, is the church, going back to the phrase used earlier, the church militant. It's a time that the rule of God is constantly being contested. Christians are being persecuted, yet the church is advancing and growing. These are features that characterize what the Bible describes as the last days and what, would, what we would describe here as a, great, a period of great tribulation. Um, so, there, there's nothing here suggesting that the Great Tribulation is a specific set of years limited to the very closing of history. They do get that view from some symbolic language in Daniel that actually could be understood a number of other ways. But I think this multitude is those who have been saved throughout all of history, which for the church, again, has always been marked by tribulation, has always been in the last days. And as I pointed out earlier, if the defining mark of the 144,000 is that they are sealed by God, how can that be true of some of God's people and not others? 
Well, likewise, if in this section, if the defining mark of the numberless multitude is that they have been, as, as we'll see here in, in verse uh, 14, they have been washed in the blood of the lamb and made white. If that's true of them, how can that be true of some believers but not others? Um, so the elder recognizes the complexity and asks the question, who are these? But really the question behind the question is, is how are they standing I mean, if every single person is a sinner who deserves judgment, who are these? How are they standing before this throne? Regardless of who we think the multitude are or who we think the 144,000 are, again, I want to just grant we can shake out in different places on that. But there's a deeper question here, really, is how are they standing? Who are these? And how are they standing before this throne out of which proceeds the white hot judgment of God we saw in chapter 6? And he explains how it's possible. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Sting, the, the, the irony of gospel categories. Gospel is always introducing categories of irony for us. Supernatural categories. Things that can only be true in Christ. I mean, think of the image. How is it possible that you take a dirty garment, you stick it in blood, and it comes out white? Like there, There's no world where that even makes sense. But it makes sense here because these are spiritual images meant to convey deep spiritual points and meant to say, well, that doesn't make sense because yes, there is an element of mystery that what God is doing is not something that can be accomplished in the natural realm through human efforts. It's something only God can bring about. And that's what they were trusting in and that's what they were standing on. So what are you trusting in? You're trusting in Maybe your own righteousness, your own religiosity. The fact that when you stack yourself up against people around you, you're slightly better. You're slightly ahead of the curve. Maybe you're trusting in a prayer you prayed or a baptism that you had at some point prior in your life. What are you trusting in? What are these people trusting in? They're not trusting in any of that, right? They're, they're trusting in the fact that my garments were filthy with sin and worldliness and I have been given a new robe and it's been made possible by the blood of Jesus. I've been granted a righteousness outside of myself. And so that's the, the call to anyone who is not a believer in Jesus, who's not really come to Jesus that way. Perhaps come on your own terms or, or other, other ways. What are you trusting in? Because in this final day, you won't be able to stand if you're trusting in anything else than the blood of Jesus to wash you clean, to make you whole, to restore you, to change you, to take out your dead heart and give you a living heart. If you're trusting in anything else, it's not going to happen. The answer to the question, who can stand? It's going to be not you. So come to Jesus because his arms are open and he grants this promise that he will seal you, that he will preserve you. He will take your dirty garments, wash them in the blood, give you white garments of righteousness that allow you to stand before the throne and the lamb without being instantly vaporized because of God's wrath and your sin. That's, that's the invitation. Come to him. Trust in nothing else. It's empty. It's vain. It's not going to get you anywhere. Fellow Christian, brother, sister, if this is your only, is this your only ground to stand on? I mean, we sing all other ground is sinking sand, right? Why trust in anything else? Really, even as believers, we can look to other things. So what are you really looking to? What are you really trusting in? 
to grant you peace and security and identity and meaning because only Jesus grants that. We have no other hope but him. And we see this all coming to pass in this final day picture uh, in verses 15 through 16. Here they are, they're before the throne. This is the same throne that others are fleeing from and trying to hide from. They're serving him night and day in verse 15 because they are the sealed servants of God who've been granted a new identity. They're sealed servants, right? So they're serving him night and day. They're safe, they're secure. He shelters them with his presence. Shelters them from what? Well, wrath primarily, but also anything else that could harm them. To be in God's presence is to be protected from all harm because no bad thing can exist in his presence. And so it's his presence that's portrayed here as the thing that protects them. Verse 16, there's no hunger, there's no, ser- no thirst. In other words, he satisfies all our deepest longings. There's no sun or heat to strike them down because again, they're protected from divine judgment that's being poured out on the earth. Verse 17, the lamb is also seen here as their shepherd. He's the one who became a sacrifice. He's not just the, the, the lamb, but the lamb is the shepherd. He leads them. The, the lamb who sacrificed himself for them becomes their shepherd who leads them and guides them to springs of living water. Fulfilling that promise that Jesus made to the Samaritan woman. You come to me, you drink of the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. It comes full circle here in Revelation 7 as that's what the shepherd's doing for all of God's people. And then we have this wonderful sweet promise that God will personally wipe away every tear from their eyes. He heals and restores all of our pains and hurts. There's no pain or hurt that will be lost and pointless in this life as much, as much pointlessness as it feels like now. And that day when his hand reaches towards your face and wipes your tears, you will see that God was working in that. He was shaping you. He was drawing your attention to him. He was teaching you to trust him. He was growing your faith in him. He was accomplishing his world purposes through your seemingly insignificant trials and sufferings. It will all become clear in that day. It's not going to be clear now all the time. Sometimes God lets us see it. Many times he doesn't. But in that day when he wipes every tear from our eyes, we will come to see his sovereignty as a sweet gift to us. Not a a cruel dealing into our lives. And it will all make sense and all things will be made new. This is the lamb who is the shepherd, who is seated on the throne, who we come to worship. By his blood, he secures his people from coming judgment. By his blood, their garments, which were stained with sin and the filth of the world, are washed and made clean because of his sacrifice. I know I've quoted a bunch of songs, but... I love our worship songs. Uh, Joshua, you can bring the team and let's close with the song. Here's another one. I don't think we're going to close with this one, but there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The, the, The flow of Jesus' blood on the cross 
is, is described by the hymn writer as a flood. In other words, there is an abundance of mercy flowing out of Jesus that is far more abundant than your sin. Any sin that you can throw at him, any lifetime of sin that you can heap upon Jesus, his mercy is greater. The flood of his mercy is wider and va- more vast and larger and is no match for the sin that you bring him. There is mercy that triumphs over the judgment that you deserve because of that sin. And that's how we can stand. What are we doing about our own guilty stains? Are we running and hiding, just hoping they'll go away? Are we trying to wash the stains out, but just making it worse? We have a book, Arlo's Big Mistake. Is that what it's called? And he, he writes on the wall and then he tries to cover it up. But as he gets the, the wet cloth and rubs the marker, he just makes the, the, the stain bigger. And the more he, then he heaps up toys and everything up against the wall and, and, and it hides the mark, but it obviously creates a scene. So mom walks in and goes, that's an interesting pile of clothes in a random spot piling up. You know, obviously you're hiding something. But so often, don't we look like that to God? We think we can wash our stains away. We think we can wash our sin away. And all we do is make it worse because we're not coming to him. We're not coming to him who offers mercy that triumphs through the judgment that we deserve. So come to him. Because of this lamb, you can be given robes of righteousness that are not your own. This is the essence of the gospel. Sinners who deserve wrath and have no chance of standing in the day of judgment are granted a new identity. And security from that coming judgment. They're welcomed in with a multitude from all nations gathered around the throne, celebrating the victory of the Lamb and His salvation. And they will bring God glory as they realize more and more the justice they deserve was actually poured out on the Lamb who became their shepherd and granted them a place to stand so that when they answer the question, who can stand, they can say, anyone who's trusting in Jesus no one else. So can I invite you? Let's stand and celebrate this truth as we sing. Lord, we thank you for answering the question, the seemingly hopeless situation that no one would be able to stand before your presence. We stand because you've made it possible. You've opened the way. What, in light of what we deserve, we have no, no reason to be able to stand. But we are recipients of rich grace and mercy. And we thank you for that.